0: That's stamps.com. Code program.
1: The world's universities face a new academic year, one like no other. For students, COVID 19 is making life difficult. Many must choose between seminars streamed over dodgy internet connections and putting their studies and their lives on hold until further notice. For academic institutions, it's disastrous. They're losing vital revenue from foreign students, and they need to transform how they operate to protect those who make it to campus. Added to that, relations between the West and China, the biggest source of high-paying international students, are souring. And students themselves are increasingly sceptical that their hard-earned degrees offer value for money. For years, subsidies and booming demand have allowed universities to resist change. But this is the moment of reckoning. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, can higher education pass the COVID-19 test? My guest is Janet Napolitano, a professor of public policy at the University of California, Berkeley. She's just finished seven years as president of the University of California System, a vast network of ten campuses, over a quarter of a million students and almost as many staff. Before that, she was Secretary of Homeland Security under Barack Obama, the first woman to hold that office. And she's also served as Attorney General and then Governor of Arizona. Janet Politano, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank
2: you very much.
1: Well, what a time to step down, In the midst of a pandemic looming recession, alas, a summer of nationwide protests, and on the verge of a particularly significant election. Looking back over your last year as president of the sprawling University of California system, what are the defining moments for you?
2: There are so many, but I think the most defining moment won't come as a surprise. And that was the day in March when we realized that we all had to go into quarantine and we had to shut the campuses down and convert to online instruction to finish out the term. That those of us in administration had to begin working from our homes. uh, And we've been in the process of making the difficult decision about what to do with the fall term. But that day in March, I I will always remember when my assistant came into my office and
1: said, We need to shut down and move home. And as the universities approach a new academic year, where do we think the balance of this should fall? Harvard will host. Around 40% of students will be COVID tested every three days. They'll have to sign contracts not to have guests in their dorms. Does that strike you as a sensible? compromise. Do you have any concerns?
2: Oh, certainly. Universities in the the United States are designed for social interaction. That's part of the experience in the classroom, in the dining hall, in the dormitories. And then you're dealing with a particular age group, right? 18 to 22 year olds often living away from home for the first time. It's an exciting time. And and it's a time that just cannot be 100% replicated during a pandemic. So adjustments need to be made. Now, different campuses across the United States are doing different things. Many, like the University of California, are going to be pretty much fully remote. Others, like Purdue University in Indiana, Mm -hmm. are having students come back with various uh, requirements. and we'll have to see whether those requirements that they're imposing are sufficient enough to prevent an outbreak.
1: And what about the quality of that online provision? There is evidence from studies of secondary schooling around the world that remote learning widens education gaps, at least in the short to medium term, between the rich and poor students and also between white students and those of colour, which, of course, is a particularly salient topic in the US and beyond right now. Are you confident that delivering online education at greater scale for students can avoid that trap or at least be aware of how it might deal with it?
2: I think we need to be uh, aware of it proactively. For example, during this period, our campuses have, you know, we've purchased dozens on dozens of Wi-Fi hotspots for students who don't have access to the internet. We've purchased uh, hundreds and hundreds of the right kinds of laptops so that students have the right kind of technology. Uh, And we're working through how we actually offer either small group or personal academic support to students. We're a public university and, and we really do have a commitment for inclusion, providing a top flight education to a broad array of students. So for example, uh, some 44% of our students are the first in their families to go to college. And almost 40% are what we call Pell Grant eligible, meaning they come from very low economic uh, status families. Uh, So one of the things we've been working on is the time to degree and graduation rate for students from those two categories so that they are matching the time to degree and graduation rate of, say, their wealthier peers. We know that we're going to have to intervene proactively if we're going to continue that progress.
1: Let's talk about foreign students and uh, where they fit in this picture. Every year, around 5 million international students travel to study universities in America, Australia, Canada and Britain. It's risen massively from around 2 million, I think, back in in the year 2000s. This is a year in which new foreign students won't be able to enter the US if their courses have moved online there've been various to and fro about that and the administration previously threatened not to renew the visas of students already in the us what do you think of the place we've landed in I'm very
2: uncomfortable uh, with it and I'm quite pr- frankly I'm worried about it you know universities in the United States historically have been talent magnets for the world, bringing thousands upon thousands of students to live here, to be educated here. Many remain to work here. And even when they return uh, to their home countries, they return with a greater understanding of the United States, which I think is helpful for so-called soft diplomacy. That faucet is now drying up, you know. and, And in addition to um, their value of bringing uh, diversity of experience and perspective to our universities. International students also bring, you know, a fair amount of of money, and and that fund source is is drying up. So, but
1: isn't that the danger that you become too dependent? And I would say this also for certainly a, a number of British universities, you become rather dependent on having that coming through of students, the combination of the trade with, with China, a toughening in Beijing and the virus means it's very unlikely you're going to see Chinese students back at scale in the American system.
2: Yeah, yeah I, I think certainly in the near term, I think that is absolutely true. And for public universities in the United States, you know, I think, uh, yes, there has been a Uh, a dependence on the revenue that international students bring with them. Obviously, if we are going to sustain the quality of the public university systems in the United States, that revenue is going to have to be replaced somehow, hopefully through uh, state appropriations, because I certainly think uh, raising tuition is not an option.
1: Well, you say it's not an option, but that has not been easy, has it? We've basically seen public higher education has been dwindling in terms of what it can get from the public coffers.
2: I think that's true. And it's interesting here. Um, You know, the University of California generally regarded as the finest public university system in the world, yet it is a continual battle to uh, get adequate funding to support what we do at the scale with which we do it. You know, I think when the University of California was founded, there was this great spirit that this was a an important investment for the state to make um, and that it was to the common good to make that investment. Um, I, I fear that uh, we've lost that sense of the university as a common good.
1: But I would really challenge you uh, on this, President Napolitano, and, and my argument would be, well really, it's you can see it popping up everywhere now and the data is really pointing in one direction. We're seeing a high proportion of students still not graduating, up six years or so after starting their degree. The wage premium has been shrinking. Uh, in Britain, a, a serious report that says in a lot of cases, graduates would be better off in terms of earnings not to have gone to university at all. So have universities and colleges been sufficiently self-critical about their offer?
2: I think we always have to be self-critical. But let me give you some data from the University of California. So
1: I thought that might be coming.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, you know our, six-year graduation rate is close to 90 percent and our four-year graduation rate is is around 70 to 75 percent so when students enroll in the university of california they're going to graduate and they're going to graduate with a degree that translates into income so that within five years of graduating our students who come from the lowest quintile of economic wealth of of their families Within five years of graduating, they're making close to five times what their uh, parents made. And that, that wage development increases over the length of their careers. However, as a uh, sector, higher education is uh, not self-critical enough and doesn't challenge itself enough as to how it can provide more access, better content delivery, better outcomes for a greater and more diverse population. I, I agree with you on that.
1: And what about the racial imbalance in the the value of a college education? Because as you, you've described, a, a kind of thinking that, that many of us would subscribe to, education would be a vector for opportunity and for overcoming... Hurdles. But if you look at black households in the US with heads who've completed a college degree, with a lower net worth than white households headed by someone who's finished high school. So that would suggest that a degree has limited power to change individual outcomes, particularly if they're linked to racial inequality. Well, that actually
2: drives us uh, to the whole issue of what has been now labeled structural racism, that black families have far less accumulated Wealth. They have a much lower percentage of home ownership. the The percentage that um, go on that get a four year college degree is much lower than the percentage in their population, particularly amongst black males. That's a real problem because. I actually think the one tried and true tactic that has been used in the United States to address the issue of income inequality has been this great system of public universities available in every state of the United States. But for reasons we don't really understand and need to understand, Black students are not taking advantage of uh, those public institutions. And even when they do, their outcomes are are not as great. It's to your point. I think it's a very valid point.
1: What about the future uh, of work? I mean, we've written endlessly, as have others, uh, about the fourth industrial revolution and the impacts of well, basically everything from automation to the exponential growth in computational power on work. Are you convinced that we are still teaching the right subjects for future of work? And that's a question that's just become even more of a pincer, has it not, in a time when we're looking at a really difficult time, even in the the rich world and far beyond?
2: Yeah, I think universities, from a curriculum standpoint, always need to be seeing around the corner. I'll give you an example, the rise of so-called big data, Big data is is revolutionary in terms of the power that it helps to inform science. Uh, we now have uh, established at, at several of our campuses, entire departments, and in some instances, actual colleges for the study of big data. And those students are going to be snapped up in a nanosecond when they graduate because that skill set is uh, highly valuable. That's just, you know, one way at which universities can educate and empower their students to help drive the economy forward.
1: And where do you think we will end up in terms of that kind of of balance about college education versus other kinds of training and, and education. This, again, an argument seems to gone on for a long time, but I can imagine, particularly given the difficulties of getting college access, admissions, sorted in, in the COVID era, that a lot of, of people who would not otherwise have thought of it might be thinking, you know, I'm going to go for a different form of training or education. And The American system is remarkably inflexible on that, isn't it? It's really kind of community college or it's the four-year degree. What one hopes
2: students uh, graduate with when they have a four-year degree, is uh, the ability to not only perform a competency but to be creative, to be able to work in teams, to be able to put things into historical and cultural context, greater understanding of the world in which they find themselves. That you know combined with competencies make them prepared to be fully active as the next generation takes our
1: place. I was just reading today that Ayaan Hersay Ali, a public intellectual and writer, is founding an organisation which she says should oppose and actively oppose cancel culture. It's very focused on what she sees as uh, debate in the universities being stymied, being too limited, the number of unthinkables, unsayables being seen to, to rise, uh, societies and universities become more divided. Is she right? Does free speech need more of a defence on campus?
2: It needs a continued uh, defense and explanation. At some of our campuses, we've had speakers who many students find objectionable for their views, and uh, we've actually had to, you know, spend money to provide more security for those speakers. But in my view and in the view of our chancellors, the, you know, free speech is not free, and Students need to hear different points of view and that the answer to objectionable speech is not censorship, but indeed it's more speech. It's refutational speech Um, and that campuses ought to be very lively debating grounds. Um, That's part of what they were designed to be. So to the extent that there is an aspect of this that is uh, labeled cancel culture, I think that runs counter to what, in, in my view, Uh, is one of the values of a university.
1: For the first time in your university's history, Chicano and Latino students have made up the greatest share of Californians admitted to freshman class, around 36%. More than half of high school graduates, as you know in California, are Latino. Should California bring back affirmative action into university admissions? The phrase inspires some and horrifies others.
2: It's actually going to be on the ballot in November in California. From a ballot measure that was passed some 20 some odd years ago in California, we have actually been precluded from considering race, ethnicity or gender in uh, making admissions decisions. And the repeal of that ban is on our ballot. And I support it because... When we look at a student for admission, we're trying to evaluate both whether the student can handle the academics of uh, a challenging university curriculum, but also what kind of contribution they can make to the university community. And so we look at 14 different factors and the only factor we can't look at is a student's race, ethnicity or gender, which are kind of central to a student's identity. And it's such an artificial limitation. I think the limitation should be removed.
1: You know what I'm very curious about? It's part of something that is on my mind, really, as we're looking into a future that looks very different. How different do you think universities should be if I said in 10 years' time, far enough out for you <laughs> not to have to take direct responsibility, but not so far that, that you can't foresee it. If the system is to say stay relevant and to be seen as fairer, but is still to be efficient and to be part of the motor of American prosperity, what will be very obviously different?
2: You know, I, I think one of the obvious differences will be the greater availability of Online coursework, and perhaps even the ability to actually earn a University of California degree totally online. And I think when you think of it that way, you can also begin to think of different ways of access to the university. So you know, students today are going to face a rapidly changing job market. They're likely to have 10 or 12 jobs over the course of a, of a career, uh, maybe even more. And perhaps uh, the ability to come back and uh, refresh and learn uh, new content over the course of their livelihoods will be an evolution for us. Kind of a a UC for life approach that once you're in, you're in and uh, you get your initial degree. And then if you need or want to come back, you have that kind of automatic access.
1: We should turn to your previous uh, job. I think that was a, a time I met you in a, a different context. You were Secretary for Homeland Security, and that was during the H1N1 crisis, uh, since we now have moved on and our pandemics you seem to have uh, have become even more serious. You were the person responsible for coordinating the federal response. Now, there's clearly been mistakes made in all quarters in the past months. But what do you think would now make the biggest difference to improving the US response to that? The pandemic?
2: Well, um, I won't be shy about it. I think the thing that will improve our response is a new president. Um, I think the lack of uh, leadership from the White House has been actually fatal. Um, I think there was no reason why the United States uh, should have 170,000 deaths and a total economic shutdown Uh, due to the coronavirus, uh, but for the fact that the administration was slow to the ball, downplayed the virus, has been inconsistent uh, as to what um, and how it would use its authorities, has undermined science all the way through, uh, has provided inadequate and inaccurate information to uh, the population, and that has made what was a, a, a new virus, a serious virus, a challenging virus, such an overwhelming disaster for the United States.
1: But, you know, I mean, I'm just going to try and see from the other end of the telescope, which is that you might fit that bill of someone who served the Obama administration and uh, Trumpophiles would say, yeah, well, she would say that, wouldn't she? You know, they're always out to to get us or talk us down. And in fact, if you look down around the world, many countries which don't have leadership as extreme or eccentric as President Trump also have had very different responses to the pandemic. Yeah, you know, Sweden might be one example that, that springs to mind. I mean, can you be wholly sure that... This is, if you like, and I'm responding to your answer politically designated in terms of the weaknesses that that we've seen
2: you know the United states is is you know one of the world's great powers frankly um with tremendous influence uh around the world, and that influence has Uh, I think, waned during the the Trump administration. And, you know, instead of being an example of how to manage a pandemic, it's been an example of how not to manage a pandemic. And things that affect other countries, you know, the the withdrawal from the World Health Organization, uh, for example, served no purpose other than uh, to emphasize that the the United States as a country has been retreating. Treating from that kind of world leadership.
1: At your old department, the Homeland Security, forces there have been deployed, federal customs and protection uh, officers, border protection officers, to police protests in Portland, uh, Oregon, where there have been flashpoints uh, recently and elsewhere. Is that an example to you of the Trump administration misusing its powers and uh, you Can you obviously say hand on heart that there'd be no other administration in which it would be tempting in a situation which could get out of control and could uh, threaten lives and well-being that Homeland Security forces would be used?
2: Here's the way I look at uh, the, the situation in Portland. First, For DHS to send in heavily armed uh, agents, you know, these are uh, many of them are BORTAC agents. These are agents that work along the southwest border that do heavy duty drug cartel and gun smuggling uh, kind of work. Uh, And to move them up to Portland, where there were protests that were primarily peaceful, but yep, they were putting graffiti on a federal building and things of that sort. Over the objection of the local mayor, over the state's governor, that uh, to me was uh, overuse. And from a a law enforcement perspective, just from an operational evaluation, it it was actually not an effective operation. In fact, it exacerbated the number of protesters and the misbehaviors of uh, some of the protesters. And the way you can measure that is once they agree to stand back, the protests, you know, return to kind of kind of a normal level. And in Portland, you know, Portland's kind of known for uh, having a protest culture. So they, there's always a little bit of noise uh, up there. Um, but just from a, an evaluative uh, standpoint, it didn't do any good, except that it gave President Trump, you know, kind of a a political, I'm going to be the law and order president uh, kind of argument.
1: Well, with that in mind, I was thinking about the Biden-Kamala Harris uh, ticket. Defund the police has become a rallying cry for people who see it as a possible solution to structural racism and, and violence in policing. Do these arguments have any merits, first off, and how should Biden and Harris respond to them?
2: Well, I think Biden already has responded that he does not support defunding the police. And I think he's right about that. Um, I think for an ordered society, you do need police presence. I think the real question is how are police officers recruited? How are they trained? How are they supervised? Uh, What are their operational parameters? What are the rules they have to follow? Can we do more uh, with respect to use of force? Should we do more with respect to disciplining officers who violate their own rules? I believe the answer to all of those questions is is yes. But I think defund the police is is just unrealistic, unworkable, and, and it's an unfortunate label for what I think really is meant, which is to reform the police.
1: And does the same go for the Department of Homeland Security? Because we've heard some calls from certain quarters for it to be dismantled, which seems unlikely, but there you are. And if you don't agree it should be dismantled completely, what checks would you want to see brought in on its powers that would uh, would outlive the perhaps the reaction to the Trump administration and the alleged abuses?
2: Well, one thing that has happened under the Trump administration that I think needs to be... Uh, repaired is that the Department of Homeland Security actually has its own Office of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties. And that office was uh, designed to evaluate at the outset any contemplated DHS um, action that would implicate civil rights and civil liberties. And uh, to um, advise the secretary as to that so that the secretary can you know, make adjustments and either um, change the proposal, withdraw it, or what have you. And we used that office quite a bit when I was secretary under President Obama. That office has basically been denuded um, under President Trump. I don't think there's any effective civil rights or civil liberties evaluation that goes on at DHS now. And I think restoring that and emphasizing its importance and ensuring that the head of that office is a direct report to the secretary Uh, I think that would send a strong message.
1: We can't let you go uh, without finding out a little bit about your future plans. Um, You you were taking a year-long sabbatical. I don't know what that's code for. Gardening, maybe, something beyond. And then, (laughs) then join was that a bad guess? No, no,
2: no. Um, I'm a terrible gardener. That's why I'm laughing.
1: I think I was on the money then. Uh, then you're going to join the uh, UC Berkeley School of Public Policy. You Have you ruled out a run for political uh, office or indeed some rumours that you might have your eye on the US Supreme Court? Are they right?
2: You know, I think they're just idle rumours. My in- intent is to establish a new centre on the study of security and politics at Berkeley. I also, however, um, if I can be helpful to the Biden campaign, uh, will willingly chip in. You know, I want my voice to be heard. I think uh, I have a variety of experiences on a variety of issues that are pertinent to the campaign and to a new administration. And and I want to be able to, to help there.
1: Let's finish with perhaps some uh, advice from your own journey through academia. What's the most important lesson you learned at university? Or maybe the one thing you wish you'd learned at university? I'll be very
2: specific. I wish I had studied and learned more about China, because China has only grown in importance and relevance in so many different fields around the globe. And I, I think, like most Americans. I I just don't have a, a deep enough understanding there. I wish I had actually studied it.
1: Janet Napolitano, thank you very much for joining us and sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you very much. And we'd love to know what you think. How should higher education be reformed in these days of home working and home learning? And what are your life lessons from your student days, be they now or in the distant past? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And for more of our journalism, including a deep dive into the future of higher education after COVID, do subscribe at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link's in the show notes. And one more ask we'd really appreciate a rating on Apple. It does help us form and develop our shows. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist.
2: Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, oh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right.